Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you great thanks for your word this morning, and we thank you for your servant Gideon. Flawed he may be, uh, you used him nonetheless. And Lord, um, this room is filled with Gideons, that we would uh, be made uh, more aware of who we are as human beings, uh, but even so, more aware of whose we are uh, in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, remember last week we had this amazing victory with Gideon uh, over the Midianites and the Amalekites. And uh, we didn't get into the story, but what basically Gideon does with his 300 men after the large general goes rolling the dream thing, they go down and they have a sword in one hand and they have lanterns in the other and they surround the camp. And they do this at the changing of the guard and they make a lot of noise and they think, the Midianites think, that the Israelites are more than their number. And panic ensues. Uh, and uh, while all this is going on, it's like Black Friday at 6 a.m. at Walmart. There is like a stampede, and people, well, they end up killing one another in the whole uh, melee, and Gideon um, wins this great victory uh, for the Lord. And, um, but we also didn't cover, which I'm not going to get into this morning, is Gideon putting out his fleece. Some of y'all have probably said that in your lives. Well, you know, I'm just going to put out my fleece and see what the Lord does. And really, that is uh, Gideon's insecurity. Uh, and it's one of those funny things where uh, it was a really ridiculous thing for Gideon to do. Uh, but the Lord worked with him anyway. Remember when uh, Gideon expressed some fear about going down into the Midianite camp? Uh, what did the Lord say? Look, take somebody with you. Uh, the Lord was going way out of his way, uh, which he always does, to meet Gideon where he was. He knew that Gideon was an insecure guy and so was always meeting him where he was, where things that should have offended the Lord profoundly, uh, for some reason the Lord in his mercy uh, decides not to give Gideon too much grief. So we're going to pick it up and I'm going to read a, a pretty lengthy passage, but this is right after Gideon has won this great victory. And the men of Ephraim, this is a different tribe, said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight with Midian? And he said to them, What have, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. That was the scene where he goes after them and he chops their heads off and brings them back. Uh, you can read that to your kids tonight before they go to bed. What, ha what have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him was abated when he had said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and passed over. He and the 300 men who were with him faint yet pursuing. Because some guys got away and they're going after them. After Zeba and Zelmunna, the kings of Midian... And the officials of Succoth said, Are Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? I skipped something, sorry. They get to Succoth and they ask for some provisions, and the people of, of Succoth say, Have you been given over these guys that we should give bread to your army? And Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. 
Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the caravan, caravan, caravan route east of Noba and Jogbaha. There's going to be a geography lesson, folks. And attacked the army. And for the army was off its guard. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled. And he pursued them and took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's. And he caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are faint? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, and taught the men of Succoth. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and slew the men of the city. Okay. Uh, there has been a huge uh, climate change uh, with Gideon, uh, starting with his victory. When, he gets, when, uh, when Gideon gets this huge victory, uh, it gets around. You know, I mean, if you've just knocked down an army of 120,000 men, uh, word gets out. And Ephraim, which is a pretty strong tribe, comes up to where uh, Manasseh's tribe is in uh, the top part of Israel. And Ephraim is sort of like, why weren't we invited to the party? You know, this is, this is a problem. We're upset by the fact that we weren't included in this great rout of the people who have been eating off of our land as well. And they show a complete lack of respect to, Eph to uh, Gideon. Because the bottom line is if Gideon had called the men of Ephraim, they would not have come. There's no way that they were going to come. Because remember, Gideon was right when he said that our tribe is probably the least of the tribes, and my family isn't that hot in the tribe of Manasseh, and I'm definitely the worst in my family. And so if you've got the worst of the worst of the worst calling on the A-team to come on in, uh, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And so Ephraim comes up, and, and they're kind of ticked off by this. Um, they wouldn't have responded to the call. Uh, they were jealous, and what they really wanted was a cut of the plunder. Right? Because uh, the, Mal uh, the Midianites were semi-nomadic, uh, they would take their treasures and objects of value with them, and so Gideon and his men were able to collect on those, and that's what the Ephraimites really wanted, was there to be able to collect with that. Um, and it is uh, funny because what Gideon does is Gideon pacifies them. Right? He's, you know, this is not a very pleasant term, but he sucks up to them and uh, says, oh, but who am I, this lowly, lowly guy, in comparison with the great Ephraimite army? Oh, you know, here, have some of this, have some of that. And so he pacifies the Ephraimites. But what you need to know is happening is that Gideon begins to internalize some things that start to build. Have you ever done that where something happens and you think, you know, this kind of miffs me and gets me a little out of shape, but I'm not going to say anything about it, and then something else happens, and then something else happens, and then the next thing you know you're destroying a city and killing people? Uh, that's what's happening with Gideon. So Gideon kind of internalizes this, but the biggest thing is they're showing Gideon a complete lack of respect. Even though he's the lowest of the low, he's just commanded an army of 300 that has defeated the greatest, most advanced military power that the world has ever seen. 
So he is going, and some guys got away. Two of the kings of Midian have gotten away. He caught some of the princes. Uh, but Gideon, because of what's happening here, still feels like he has to prove himself. So he crosses the Jordan, which were not in his orders. God did not tell him to do that. Gideon is doing this on his own. He's gone off the reservation. Right? He's gone rogue. This is like the born identity, 4000 BC. He's kind of doing his own... Do you think that's funny? Okay. So, <laughs> write it down. So, so he's, he's gone rogue and he's taking his 300 men and they're trailing after him. They get up to the Jordan and around the Jordan there are these two towns, which one of which we don't know where it is, the other one we do know, Succoth and Peniel. And uh, Succoth uh, says, buddy, leave us out of this. You know, we've heard about your great victory, uh, but you know what? It was probably luck. You're probably just a really lucky guy because how can you and 300 guys go up against this whole huge army? So uh, do you have these guys? Have you caught them? Like they're taunting Gideon. Well, needs to say Gideon uh, loses his temper and says, what I'm going to do when I get back, and this is how you know Gideon is really mad. He doesn't say... I'm going to teach you a lesson. He actually goes into details about what he's going to do. He says, I am going to thrash you with thorns and briars. And back in the day, the way that you would thresh something, if you were trying to thresh grain, you would drag a very heavy, sharp object over the top of it. Right, that's how they did it. So Gideon begins to paint this word picture in the minds of the people of Succoth, who say, whatever, dude, you know, We'll see you when you get back. <laughs> and so his men still need provisions. They go up to Peniel, and Peniel says the same thing. And uh, he says to Peniel, I'm going to destroy your tower. But he does more than that. So he goes off, and he actually pulls it off. Uh, he is able, through strategy, they caught them unawares. He destroys what's left of this army and uh, grabs the kings and is on his way back. And uh, instead of coming back to the base camp, going back to Manasseh, going back to his homeland, he decides, I have some business to take care of with Succoth. I mean, this is really, it is kind of like a movie today. You know, the guy like, I'm coming back to get you. You know, so they should make a movie out of Gideon. Um, I'm sure someone's made a really bad movie out of Gideon. Uh, but he comes back and he does it. He threshes uh, the, the people of Succoth. Actually, very gruesome, awful death. Um, and then makes his way up to Peniel and destroys their tower, uh, but actually does more than that. He levels the city and kills everybody in it. Okay, so um, this is not, you know, Gideon a couple chapters ago, we're like, we'd love for you to teach our Sunday school. Um, you'd be so great. Uh, and now we're just like, he's a nut, right? This guy is crazy. He's got bloodlust. He's, he's way off the reservation, and the hurt pride, which we can find in 8.15, where it says, And he came to the man of Succoth and, and said, Behold, Zeva and Zelmunna, with whom you taunted me, saying, Are Zeva and Zelmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are faint? His pride is so hurt, and it started all the way back with the Ephraimites, saying, Why didn't you call upon us? Which was a huge insult to Gideon, because Gideon knew that they wouldn't come if he called. Then, you know, trying to prove something to them by moving on across the Jordan like he wasn't supposed to, and then running into these two cities that give him all kinds of grief, his loss of face has turned to rage. Right? His loss of face has turned to rage. And this is understandable if it's all about Gideon. 
Perfectly understandable if it's all about Gideon. If it were just Gideon and he was the one who actually pulled off this great victory uh, over the Midianites, you could say, gosh, he deserves a whole lot more respect than this. But if you've read chapters 6 and 7, Gideon is a frightened little boy. Uh, he's terribly insecure uh, from where God finds him threshing out the wheat in the wine press to uh, his angst about going down into the camp in the dead of night, to the whole incident with the fleece, uh, to uh, God realizing what kind of man Gideon was, that remember when he started with this huge army, uh, it's, it got whittled all the way down through 300. And not through any means like, I mean, God really saw, oh goodness. Uh, because it wasn't, remember we talked about last week, that how they drank the water. Right? Normally when God whittles something down, he does it through a means that has sort of another meaning to it. But God saw how dangerous Gideon could be in his insecurity that he just thought, I've just got to figure out a way to get rid of these guys, to get it down to 300. And so you would think 300 versus 120,000 would get into Gideon's mind and say, if you win, it's because of me. Not because of your strategy or anything that you've done. But Gideon has already, in the midst of the battle, right? the battle is still kind of going on. He's defeated the Midianites there at the foot of where he lived, and he's chasing the, what's left of them across the Jordan. So really, things are kind of f- fresh in his mind. He's not really had time to process. But in the heat of it all, he's forgotten the lesson of the 300. Now, looking back at Judges 7-2, says, the Lord said to Gideon, this is the lesson of the 300, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, my, uh, my own hand has delivered me. Right? That's the point that God is trying to make with the people of Israel, because Israel is constantly going through this cycle of where things are really great, they do evil what is inside of the Lord, things get really bad, they're handed over to some sort of evil or suffering. They cry out for a deliverer. God provides them for a deliverer. Things go great again. And then they do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So there's this constant struggle. But it's not just people. It's individuals too. But what is uh, amazing about human beings, because Gideon's no different than us, is how fickle he is that he could just have experienced the blessing of God delivering the whole army of Midian into his hands with only 300 men. And he starts to think that maybe he had something to do with that. Because there is often a spiritual danger involved in receiving any kind of blessing. There's a spiritual danger in receiving any kind of blessing. What do I mean by that? You will hear preachers here at the Advent, and I can only speak for myself, this whole notion of justification by faith. Um, We preach it, but sometimes we don't believe it. Let me give you an example. Um, Me. Um, Okay. I say that I believe in justification by faith. But let me say, I, I do spend a lot of time uh, studying and pouring into sermons and, and Bible studies. And it wasn't the last time I preached. I think it was two times ago that I preached. It was the Mercedes Marathon. I hate the Mercedes. I'll never even get in a Mercedes ever again. Like that might happen. But, uh, but um, you know, wherever two or three are gathered together, um, I don't believe that. Uh, and... It's hard not to think when there are fewer people there that it's about me, right? 
if a lot of people don't show up, I think, what did I say last time that, that was bad? Or I think, I guess they just don't like me. Now, that is stupid, right? It's terribly insecure, and it's ridiculous. Um, but what's the real spiritual danger in that? What is the worst thing that could happen to a preacher if he's worried about numbers? That's right. See, Clay, you're such a good Christian. Uh, Clay beat me to the punch. Now, a lot of people, if I asked them at a cocktail party, would say, oh, the worst thing that could happen is nobody show up. Right? That's the worst. And in my mind, I think that's the worst thing that could happen too, but it's actually not. Uh, because if that happens, um, it at least gives me a reality check. Right? It gives me a reality check of, dude, you're going to have to get over this. Right? And it's, it's not about you. Like, sometimes the Mercedes Marathon just happens. Or it may be that something better is going on, and that's okay. Right? There are people that have different kinds of gifts. Uh, so that's really not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen is a lot of people show up. Because then all of a sudden, what do I start to think? I've got it. Yeah. You know, I got, um, which is not true. It's not true. Um, that what is, is drawing people... Um, hopefully, uh, to a class or to a, a sermon. And Sunday attendance really isn't a good indicator of this. Um, is the Word, right? Is an encounter with Jesus Christ. And it really is about Him. And it really doesn't matter who is in the congregation or how many people are in the congregation. And Gideon falls into the trap of think, you know, what happens is that he's received this blessing of seeing how powerful God is in the lesson of the 300, and yet um, the worst thing happens, success. And Gideon starts to think that there's at least just a little part, just a little part of, um, of him in this. And uh, human beings like Gideon will see every success as confirmation of the belief that we can save ourselves by our own ability and power. As soon as Gideon crosses the Jordan, that's what he's operating under. Right? I'll show you. I'll catch you. And the worst thing that can happen is that you're successful. Right? To have anecdotal evidence that actually you do have the ability to save yourself and to keep yourself together. I'm drinking a lot of caffeinated coffee to try to balance out the mucinex. But if I start hallucinating... Um, uh, but we see here that despite all of God's precautions, Gideon does not expect honor and gratitude for what he has done. Instead of telling Peniel and Succoth, these two terrible little villages, you know, instead of saying to them, fellow citizens, we are small, but we have won because of God's grace. Right, that's what Gideon should have said. Yes, we are only 300, but that's just to prove how great God is. Uh, what he says is, how dare you doubt me? How dare you doubt me? Well, uh, for the remaining couple minutes that we have this morning, uh, with that background, I just reflected upon the flurry of emotions that I feel uh, when I forget God's grace. Uh, when I forget God's grace in my life. And one of those, and you see this in the life of Gideon, and I'm sure your life too, uh, is anxiety. Uh, when you forget God's grace, you're going to get anxious. Um, and what I think is, if I mess up, all might be lost. Right? If I don't follow through, if I don't do the job that I'm supposed to do, then everything is going to be lost. And Gideon suffers from this. 
we do this in our lives all the time when we say, you know what, the thing is, is that God does his part and I do mine. Uh, I remember there was a guy that uh, I used to work with and he had a little plaque up on uh, his wall that read, pray as if it depended on God, act as if it depended upon you. And every time I walked in there, I thought, there's an anxious man. Uh, there's a guy who's never going to be sure that things are going to go quite how he wants them or how they ought to go because he thinks that he's got this sort of 50-50 with God and that uh, if he doesn't do his part, uh, then maybe God won't do his. Right. So if you, stop, if you forget, I'm not even saying stop trusting, if you forget uh, the lesson of the 300 in God's grace, uh, it's easy to become anxious and to think I have to do my part. And instead of thinking, uh, everything I have is a gift of grace, he has given up everything for me, that is God, his only son, uh, surely he will continue to provide. God has provided time and time again for Gideon up to this point, and if anybody's angst-ridden, it's Gideon. Right? I'm kind of afraid to go down to the camp. Take somebody with you. Well, what about my, I'll put the fleece out. Remember, he doesn't just believe the fleece the first time. He goes, okay, well, that could have been a fluke. Let's put it out again. Right? God meets him where he says, look, I'm going to provide for you. Stop being so anxious. Another response is pride and anger. Gideon very much felt like, I'm not getting what I deserve. Right? We talked about it last week. What would it look like in life if we got what we deserved? Right? And what we find and what we'll see next week is that things actually get much worse for Gideon. Much, much worse. It gets terrible. And God hands him over to himself and says, Gideon, if this is what you want, then you can have it. And Gideon spends the rest of his life living with a sense of resentment. You know, sort of Rodney Dangerfield. No, I'm going to respect around here. You know, just not feeling like anyone respects him the way that he's supposed to be respected, that don't look up to him the way that he's supposed to be looked up to. Do you remember the really funny uh, Saturday Night Live skit with Will Ferrell when he kept just saying over and over again, I drive a Dodge Stratus! Right? Uh, like, in his mind, driving a Dodge Stratus meant something. And of course, the joke is, it doesn't mean anything. Right? I'm glad he said Dodge Stratus. But, um, and so... One of the things, if you don't, or if you're forgetting God's grace, it's easy to slip into thinking that you're getting what you don't deserve. Because what we all deserve is death. Paul says in Romans, uh, for the wages of sin is death. Uh, you work for a wage. Um, at the end of the day, when you get your paycheck, it's death. That's what you've earned. And so instead of crying out for justice and getting what you think you ought to deserve, uh, we ought to cry out for mercy because we realize that what sustains us and what gets us through life is God's grace, God's unmerited favor to us who deserve death and really deserve to be left to ourselves, but God in his mercy rescues us. <laughs> guilt. When I forget God's grace, I start to feel guilty. And I think that all of my problems mean God has abandoned me. I've done something that has ticked God off and so he's just, you know left me. Well, if what you have, if grace, if grace is a gift, if all you have in your life is a gift, you've never earned it to begin with. And if you didn't earn it, you can't unearn it. All right? That's the nature. If you didn't earn it in the first place, there's no way that you can unearn it. 
There's no way that you can lose it. And so for those of us uh, who are thinking, you know, God is action consequence to me, that what I, I must have done something to tick him off. And normally our response is to get real serious about our spirituality. You know, I'm going to start going to church more often. Uh, I'm actually going to order the tomato aspic at Lenten lunch. Um, you know, you get real spiritual. Um, and, um, which is good, by the way, with the mayonnaise. Um, but, um, you know, you, you do, you, you start, you think, well, if I read my Bible more, God will bless me more. If I pray more, God will, will bless me more. If I do this, if I, I put a little bit more on the offering plate, uh, God is going to bless me more. And that's not the way that God works. Because if what he's given you is a gift, you didn't earn it in the first place, you can't unearn it. God is not, uh, to excuse uh, the phrase, I don't know else, how else to say this, but God's not an Indian giver. Right? He doesn't give you something and say, I've changed my mind, I'm taking it back. He doesn't do it. So all that we have is a gift. But what I tend to find myself in, in the modern 21st century, is when I forget God's grace, um, I get bored. Boredom sets in. I'm a Christian, I've got good things, so what? You know, I, I just kind of think that that's the way that life is and, and I, I, you know, roll with the punches, but I forget just how amazing God's grace is and that even being a believing Christian is a miracle, is a miracle. We all have friends in our lives um, that uh, in college, I thought this all the time, where in college I would say that this person is this close to becoming a Christian. Right. Or, you know, I've been praying for them, and they're this close to become a Christian based upon the conversations and interactions I've had with them. And then that person never becomes a Christian, but the guy who used to wear black eyeliner and paint his fingernails black, all of a sudden he's a minister at some church, right? <laughs> and you think, how in the world, right? Uh, I mean, millions of angels are rejoicing in heaven, heaven any time a sinner uh, believes on the name of Jesus for salvation, right? That's the greatest miracle of all, that... As human beings, our hearts would actually be turned toward Jesus and that we would be enabled to choose him where before we would choose anything but him. Right? And I forget that all the time. I for, at a very basic level, I forget that. I mean, it's very easy for me to forget um, God's blessings and, and, and grace. Like, I mean, and, and that's what's happened is Gideon has not just forgotten the lesson of the 300 in that through the victories have come have have been as a result of God's intervention, but he's lost the whole plot. Uh, he's forgotten that he's forgotten his calling while he was in the wine press. He's forgotten the stories. Remember, the oral tradition was very big, and he even talked to God. He said, you know, God, back when you brought our people out of Egypt, he'd forgotten the whole story. And how often I forget, you know, except when I'm in the store and I hear the music over the intercom system, uh, the miracle of Christmas. Right. I don't, you know, they don't really play Easter music. Um, I guess they play the bunny hop, but that's not going to remind you of the Lord. Uh, but you know, how often we forget um, the very basic, basic plot and narrative of God's work and intervention in our lives, much less uh, the little things in our lives from our marriages, uh, our children, uh, our friends, uh, the fact that we have food on the table, um, just those little things, and frankly, as Christians, often we become bored with them. Now, how do we get back in touch with that? Uh, it is simply to be reminded of it. Right? 
Craig Smalley used a great little illustration, a little story about Martin Luther uh, on the steps of his church a couple weeks ago when a parishioner came out and said, Pastor, every week we hear you preach the message of gospel and, and the message of God's grace. Um, we get it. Why won't you preach on something else? And Martin Luther responded, because you forget it every week. Right? And that's true. We have to be reminded every week. And one of the problems that Gideon fell into, and this happens when you forget God's grace, is you begin to think the barometer that determines God's grace and God's love for you are your feelings. You begin to think, I feel like, if you feel like God loves you and things are going really well, it's easy for you to say, praise the Lord. God loves me. Uh, but when things aren't going so well, uh, when you feel like God is very far off, uh, you start to question that. Um, I know that I've used the illustration a thousand times, but so I'll use it again. Uh, the great German reformer Melanchthon, um, whose daughter married uh, Thomas Cranmer, by the way, um, I think, yes. And um, he, when Luther was translating the New Testament into German, was writing uh, Luther all of these letters. And in these letters, he, Melanchthon had the tendency to navel gaze and he would write things like, I'm just not sure that God loves me. I just don't feel like God loves me right now. And Luther, for the longest time, just ignored them. And he finally wrote back some very famous words. And he said, Melanchthon, go and sin boldly. All right, everyone remembers Luther for that. I did in college. And then, uh, but the second part, go and sin boldly, for the cross is outside of you. And what Luther was saying is, the cross is an objective fact. It's an event, that ha a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago, ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem called Calvary where Jesus actually died. And your feelings don't amount to a hill of beans. The moment you think that God doesn't love you, think upon that cross that really happened. Don't think about how you feel. Don't navel gaze. But look at what really has happened and what the truth of things is, which is that God loved you so much that he would die for you. And there's nothing that you can do that is going to take that away. You can't hit, there's nothing that you could do that's going to change that fact. And so what Gideon has lost touch of is that he's internalizing everything and he's looking in himself and that has produced all of these feelings of anxiety, of guilt, of, um, what else did I say? Guilt, uh, anxiety, pride, anger, and even boredom. Um, because he's internalized everything and he's looking inward instead of looking at what God has actually done. And I don't even mean God, what, God has unto, what God has actually done before his eyes in a matter of days. Right? He doesn't have to sort of think back to an event. He's actually witnessed an event of what God has done in his eyes. And God does that in our lives too, but how easy we are to forget uh, God's gracious hand. And so this morning, uh, I would uh, say, remember. Uh, remember... Uh, and we do that every uh, communion service. Uh, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, uh, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Uh, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee. The words are so important. Uh, so we give you a tangible reminder and we also tell you audibly uh, to remember what God has done for you because we are prone to amnesia.
Uh, and when we an amnesia sets in, it has a profound effect on us as believers and as human beings. And so uh, I hope that uh, we're able to take a page out of Gideon's bad playbook. And uh, the moment that you begin to forget God's grace, that we would be brought to mind of his grace poured out for us on the cross through Jesus Christ. Any questions? Duncan. Creflo. Yeah. Yeah. Creflo Dollarhide. And uh, it kind of reminded me of getting a little bit, kind of this getting what you want to expect. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's, is that kind of an extension of grace? What do you think about the whole prosperity gospel? Yeah, well, it's no gospel at all. Um, because if it's, you know, it's the whole thing about. Well, if God's not making you prosperous materially, the prosperity gospel is found a lot on television, and the whole idea is that God wants to bless you materially, right? God wants you to to drive the car that you want to drive. He wants you to have the things that you want to have. Uh, And there are several problems with it. One is the anthropology is bad, thinking that we actually know what's best for ourselves, right? Uh, Save me from myself is kind of... You know, uh, there's, there was actually uh, a billboard that somebody bought in uh, one of the, the marquees at a casino in Las Vegas, and the marquee read, Save Me From Myself, in Las Vegas. And we kind of chuckle at that because, well, that makes sense in Las Vegas, but original sin is evenly distributed regardless of geography. Like, it's just as easy for me to sin in Birmingham, Alabama, as it is for me to sin in Las Vegas. I don't have to go to Las Vegas to, to cause problems uh, for myself or you. Um, and so that's the one problem. Uh, the other problem, though, is that God's love for you is made manifest in material blessings, which the narrative of Scripture says is untrue. Uh, is untrue Because the moment, Gideon being the, the, a good case for this, the moment you think that you're not... Ge- I mean, that's pretty scary. One, it's one thing to say, you know, I've earned it, but it's how much scarier is it to say, God, you're not get- giving me what I deserve. Or to actually take it to the next step and to blame God for not giving you what you deserve. And if you think that, then your whole life is going to be plotted out by, it's almost like karma. Right? You'll keep a little karma log of, you know, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, but where's my new car? You know, where's my new house? Now, it's fine to have a new car, it's fine to have a new house, but if, that's, if you're looking for tangible results in your life of God's grace made manifest through material wealth, um, you're going to go crazy. You'll go crazy. And eventually, you know, I would love to see the number of people who have actually just dropped out of Creflo Dollar's church, just sort of faded away. Right? You'll get a steady influx. But people who have just said, this is just not true. But the problem is, is they don't go away and go to a good church. They probably just go away mad and they think, I must be a really awful person if God's not blessing me in this way. His wife had Right. I, uh, Paul Walker quoted me. He asked permission, and I granted it. Paul Walker and I were emailing a couple years ago, and, uh, and Paul Walker said, you know, Andrew, how are things going? And I said, honestly, Paul, uh, things are terrible, uh, so God must be working. And, um, and, and that's typically it, that if um, uh, God's love for us is not, con- you know, the I- Duncan, I'm glad you said this. I've got to wrap it up real quick. But um, it's, that's actually a Muslim idea that has crept into Christian theology, which is that God is in success. 
God is in everything that is good. If something bad is happening, it means that God has absented himself from the situation. And of course, what Christianity says, what the Bible says, is that God, what the world says is good, the Bible actually might call bad, and what the Bible calls bad, the world might call good, and vice versa. I don't know if I just said the same thing twice, but anyway. Um, like, I mean, and of course, the, the, the ultimate example of that is the cross. Like, the world looks at the cross and says, this is the most terrible thing that could ever happen. God must be very far away and absent, uh, when in fact God was more active and loving us more than he ever has when the world perceived him being totally absent. And so that's the problem with it. Uh, and that's why Islam has such a huge problem with the crucifixion and, and the incarnation that, that God would die. They just... They, that's off limits for them. Clay. Well, wasn't it Spurgeon that, uh, that said this? He, he just finished pre- preaching a sermon and someone came up to him and told him you know, what a great sermon it was and he thanked him and said that the devil had already told him so. Yeah, Frank Limehouse is notorious for coming. He, he does it to me and he says, Andrew, that was a really good sermon, but I know the devil's already told you that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah. <laughs> right. Thank you, Clay. All right, let's, let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, it is really something to be able to say that we are miserable offenders because there is a great freedom in that. And Lord, we are just like Gideon. But Lord, we pray that we would not be given over to ourselves. Lord, that we would remember the lesson of the 300 uh, and above all in that, the message of your cross and your great love for us, which is outside of us. And so, Lord, that uh, it wouldn't just be an intellectual assent to the idea of justification uh, by faith through grace, but Lord would actually um, be made real and manifest itself in our hearts, Lord, because you do confirm it in our hearts, but that we would not look to ourselves for salvation and for assurance, but that we would look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.